couple of weeks ago, the uh, unthinkable happened. Uh, Charlie Brown hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth to uh, lead his team to its first victory in 43 years. The, uh, the, the first segment showed Charlie Brown turning cartwheels, shouting, I did it! I hit a home run in the bottom of the ninth. We won our first game. I'm a hero. And uh, Lucy looks at him and says, You? I want to tell you a story about uh, another perennial loser who, by God's grace, became a, a winner. And then through his own foolishness, foolishness became a loser again. Uh, it's the story of Gideon, the son of Joash, the uh, Israelite. And his story is told in Judges chapter 6. Would you turn there with me, please? Uh, this is a Father's Day sermon. This is a message for fathers. I told Carolyn uh, this past week that I was going to speak to fathers, and she said, what are we mothers going to do? And I said, well, you're going to sit there like we fathers did when I gave a Mother's Day message a few, uh, few months ago. But uh, God's uh, message to us is always generic. The uh, principles obtain whether we're talking to uh, men or, or women. It's a wonderful story, one of my uh, favorite tales. I've mentioned before that, as it turns out, we human beings learn mostly through stories rather than through raw data. Uh, Therefore, we need to pay attention to stories. And this is one of those uh, wonderful tales that uh, God tells, the story of of Gideon. Now, the setting is uh, supplied in the first six verses of chapter 6, Judges chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And as you may recall, the book of Judges is a series of cycles of sin and salvation. Israel would sin. Uh, it would go into decline, into idolatry. It would be subjugated by uh, one of a number of different enemies. They would cry out to the Lord for help. God would send a judge. Now, our word judge reminds us of a judicial figure. But uh, the Hebrew word for judge, shofet, just means a hero. It's a champion, superman. And this is the story of, of one of those uh, champions. The We're told that Israel did what was evil, and uh, the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for this uh, seven-year period, and the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Uh, the uh, Hebrew text puts a definite article in front of all of those uh, those places, which would suggest that uh, they were well-known locations. People later reading the story could go back and remind themselves of, of Israel's uh, humiliation. They were utterly debased. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of, east, of the east and, and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the, earth, of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, as well as no sheep, oxen, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts, for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable. It's the first reference anywhere in any literature, secular or biblical literature, of the use of camels. 
in warfare, gave them a long-range uh, fighting force, made them invincible. This was their cavalry. Um, and both they and their cam- camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried uh, to the Lord. There are two factors that come to mind in this story. One is Israel's uh, depressed state, their sin that plunged them into this period of national uh, decline. And secondly, the fact that there was no one who could deliver them from the consequences of, of, uh, of their sin. No one could stem the tide. The dominating power came from the east, the Midianites, the Malachites, uh, nomadic uh, tribes from the desert that would periodically sweep across Israel, burning and raping and pillaging and ruining everything that they couldn't carry off. And we're told Israel was, was brought uh, very low. And when they were impoverished, they cried out to the Lord for help. Praying as a last resort is not exactly a high level of faith, but uh, they had no, no place else to turn. There was no one, no human help. And so they, they turned to the Lord for help, and he sent help. And he did two things, the account that follows. First, he sent a prophet, verses 7 through 10. I'll not read the count, but what the prophet did was put his finger squarely on their sin, which is what God does. He didn't beat around the bush. It's the devil who who brings those vague, filmy, amorphous feelings of guilt that we get from time to time. We wake up in the morning and we just feel defiled and we can't determine what it is that makes us feel that way. That's Satan's fine hand. When God speaks to us, he's always precise, definite, puts his finger right on the sin. What he says basically is uh, the problem is yours, not mine. The reason you're in, in this uh, state is because you have not, uh, you've not obeyed me, verse 10. So the second thing that he did was to raise up a judge, a deliverer, in the person of, of Gideon. And he does what he always does. He, he did what he always does. He, he picked out a very insignificant person. He, in fact, Gideon later describes himself as small. The word means insignificant or trivial. Uh, That's God's way again. As Paul puts it, he chose the foolish things, the weak things of this this world to shame uh, the wise. It's not that God has to to make do with weaklings and fools. He chooses them. That's his delight. To take the most insignificant uh, failures and make something vital, effective. Significant out of them. So uh, what happened is that the angel of the Lord, who, who is the Lord representing himself in the form of an angel, that is, the, the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate manifestation of, of God, pre-incarnate in the sense that it precedes our Lord's car, uh, incarnation. The angel of the Lord appeared uh, to Gideon, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak, which is in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, the Abiazrites were just one of the clans that belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. Um, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. He was improvising to try to keep some grain away from the marauding, uh, marauding Midianites. He was down in the winepress. These were normally 
large stones that had been hollowed out. So he was down in the hollow, hunched down, beating out a few sheaves of, of grain just so it, he could feed his uh, family. I want you to notice what the angel of the Lord says to him. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now, you just have to stop and think a little bit about the incongruity of that statement. You know, here's here's Gideon hiding out from from the Midianites and the angel of the Lord, who is God himself in in angelic or, or human form, calling him a mighty warrior. Now, that word for mighty warrior is the word that's used both in scripture and in secular literature for someone who is a member of the military aristocracy, that is, a professional soldier. And I'm sure Gideon thought, come on now, you know, who, who are we kidding here? You know? But actually, he, he seems to miss the, the irony of the angel's statement. What he did was direct his anger toward the angel. Gabriel said to, or Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers, fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us, and even given us into the, into the hand of, of Midian. Big deal, Midian says, the Lord is with us. Did, did the Lord prevent the Midianites from burning my farm? Did the Lord prevent the Midianites from killing my two brothers? We find later that he had lost two of his two members of his family in in, in, in the conflict. Or where is the Lord when all of this was was going on? Gideon felt he had the right to be resentful, but what he did not know see, is that even at that moment, God was in the process of raising up the deliverer, and it was Gideon himself. He was, he was the miracle that God had in mind. He was the wonder man, if we can put it that way. Has it ever occurred to you that you may be the wonder man, the wonder woman, that God is raising up to do something about the sad situation in our world? Maybe it's in your home, maybe it's in your neighborhood, in your university, in your office, uh, your shop. Wherever you find yourself, you know, we, we all feel so small and so insignificant. What can one person do? It may well be that, that God has in mind for you to be the miracle that he's going to work to transform that workplace or that, that classroom. God's capable of doing that. Now, if you notice the Lord shrugs off Gideon's assault. And says in verse 14, uh, first he looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Now I ask you, what was Midian's strength? He, literally the text says, Go in this strength that you have and deliver Israel from Midian. What, what strength did he have? He had none. Exactly. Exactly. It was his weakness that was his strength. It was his limitations. It was his sense of inadequacy that was his strength. Paul says, when we're weak, that's when we're strong. That's an odd sort of thing, but 
But that's something that's reinforced. That's a principle that's reinforced over and over again in the Scripture. Paul himself had some sort of affliction that he felt disqualified him from service. And he, and he prayed repeatedly that God would deliver him from that affliction. Thorn in the flesh, as he describes it. And God said, that problem may be a problem to you, but it's not a problem to me. And so Paul says, all right, I'll be content with my weakness. I'll be content with my inadequacy. Whatever it is that I think that disqualifies me, I, I will, I'll be content with that because it's when I'm weak that I'm strong. God fears our strength, and so should we. Our wives fear our strength, and so should we. See? It's not our weakness that puts off our wives. It's not our feelings of inadequacy. It's our feelings of strength and adequacy, that we can do it, that we're the little engine that could. That's what worries God. That's what worries our families. Jesus said, the flesh, that is human effort, counts for nothing. Those who do God's mighty works are those who realize their utter unfitness and complete inadequacy and the impossibility of God ever using them. Paul has another phrase, we are weak in him. That's not a pious platitude, that, that's, a, that's a certainty. We are weak. But the irony is when we're weak, that's when we're strong. Paul says in another place, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. How about that? You know, you and I boast of the things that show our strength. What we've accomplished, what we've achieved, how much physical strength we have, how much we can clean and jerk, how much uh, we, we, we have accomplished throughout our lifetime, you know, what degrees we have, those become our strength. Paul says, I boast in, in what shows my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. He's about to bring forth some evidence that uh, that he has a weakness to boast about. And it's, and it's so hard to believe, he, he has to bring forward some kind of a vow, produce some kind of vow. God knows I'm not lying, he says. In Damascus. The governor under King Artus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lured in a basket from a window in the well and slipped through his hands. Do you know what he's talking about, Paul? Saying, I have a lot of things that, that I could boast about when it comes to weakness, but there's one thing that demonstrated to me without, without a doubt how weak I am. He says, there was that day in the city of Damascus when the Christians lured me over the wall in a, in a basket. And I had to run for my life through the night. Do you know what happened? Paul was on his way to Damascus after his conversion. And he believed that he was God's gift to the church. After all, he was this highly trained, brilliant rabbi. As Paul puts it, uh, he was uniquely qualified to minister to Jews, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law of Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, faultless. Paul had all the shots and moves, and he figured he was he was God's man to turn the Jewish world upside down. Do you know what happened? He started to preach to the Jews. He created a riot. The Christians got together and said, we got to get this guy to town. He's going to set back the cause of Christ a hundred years. So they put him in a fish basket, and they lowered him over the wall, and he scampered through the night, and they said, please don't come back. 
And Paul said, that's what I glory in. That day, that was the worst day of my life, he said, but it was the best day of my life. Because that's the day I learned that I'm, as he later puts it, I'm nobody. Isn't that interesting? I'm nobody. You know, in this era where so much is being said about uh, establishing our self-worth, and which we do so on the basis of our assets and abilities and policies. In three different places in the New Testament, I'm nobody. I'm nobody. I love that little poem by Emily Dickinson. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's two of us. Don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. But I want you to understand that uh, though Paul was a nobody, he became somebody. Not, not on the basis of his own assets and abilities, his education, his background, his achievements, his physical strength, his humor, his personality, but on another basis. He rounds out the picture this way. He says, we have this treasure that is the life of God in human vessels. Howard Hendricks has a sermon that he calls uh, Christ in a peanut butter jar. I love that phrase. Because that's the analogy that Paul sets up. Just a common clay jar, he says. That's our humanity. It's what we are. But we contain divinity. We contain the presence and the essence of God himself in our lives. And that's what makes us somebody. Paul learned that he was somebody because he carried around in his body the life of Christ. And gentlemen, that's what makes you a man. It's not your 18-inch biceps. It's not your power in the boardroom. What makes you and me a man is the fact that we contain the very life of God himself. We have the essence, the presence of God in in our earthly bodies. And once you grasp that principle, then you're somebody. You don't have anything left to prove. Because you're already a proof. You have everything you need to make your way through life. So it was with Gideon. This is God looked at him. God looked at him. That's what he does for us. He casts his eyes over us every day. And he says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. That's where our power comes from. Paul says, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. George MacDonald said, to try to persuade ourselves that we're something when we're nothing is terrible loss. To confess that we're nothing is to lay the foundation of being something. That's the secret of being somebody in this world. It's knowing that you contain the life of God. Now, uh, Gideon had a hard time with this, and as we'll see, he was a man of uh, what Jesus would call little faith, and he struggled with this notion that that this one man was going to deliver Israel. And uh, he questioned God's capability, asked for some proof, asked if he could bring a sacrifice. The angel uh, approved the sacrifice. Gideon brought this enormous amount of food, an entire goat and... uh, a bushel of grain, which made a huge loaf of bread out of. And uh, the angel, who is the Lord himself, touched the uh, touched the offering and it was consumed. It's a picture, I think, of, of our offering up our lives to God. 
You know, that's the test. God says to us, I'll be with you. And we say, all right, uh, I'm available. Any distance, any time, any place, anywhere. Uh, I'll follow you. I'll trust you. I'll believe you. When we have a modicum of faith, but I'll lay it on the line. See? We present our bodies, as Paul puts it, a living sacrifice, which is holy, acceptable unto God. He approves that sacrifice and accepts it. That's what he did for, for Gideon. And then in verse 25, we're told that same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, seven years to correspond to the seven years of dominion that uh, uh, that uh, Israel had experienced, dominion under Midian, the domination of Midian, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord on the top of the stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And it came about because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of his city to do it by day that he did it by night. Change over as well as charity begins at home. The first place that Gideon was called upon to begin to experience the reality of God's presence was in his own home. And and God's first uh, request to him was to go back home and set things right there and be the kind of man that God had called him to be in that setting. He didn't immediately call him to public service, public office. He was sent back home. That's where we always have to begin. That's where the reality of our faith is tested out. His father was the custodian of a Baal sanctuary and uh, where, where, where people came to worship Baal. Probably even a priest. Had a great bull that represented Baal. In fact, as a matter of fact, our English word bull comes from that word Baal because he was always worshipped under that under that particular figure. Now, profile and courage, uh, Gideon was not. He was shaking in his boots. He did what he had to do by night, and he did it with the help of ten of his friends, which you know, which is always a good thing to do. That's why these accountability groups are so important. We need other men to move in alongside, encourage us support us but he did it he did it he cut down the worship of Baal in his own home chopped down the Asherah pole and uh, broke the uh, bull into, into, into pieces he was scared to death one knee said to the other let's shake but he did it he did it someone has said courage is doing without courage Sometimes you have to do what God called you to do even though you're frightened out of your wits. He did it. And I don't have time to read the rest of the account, but he, uh, he, he caused a, an enormous ruckus. The people in town wanted to kill him because he had hewn down the bale and they depended upon the bale, they thought, for fertility, for their crops, for rainfall. Attacked the very center of their culture. Hardcore of unbelief in, in Israel. They wanted to kill him. His father had become a believer. He said, yeah, no. No, you can't lay a hand on him. And they gave him a name after that. Jerubbaal, which means Baal fighter. They came to have that reputation. Why? Because he started at home. They 
Start at home, worshiping God there, living out the life of God in that in that setting, bringing the worship of God into into the the life of his of his family. It's where we have to begin. It's where we have to start. We don't start out there. We start at home. Then we're told almost immediately thereafter that the verse thirty three, the Midianites and the Amalekites, the sons of the east, assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called together to follow him. Isn't that interesting? What authority he had. Why? Because he was obedient to the truth that he had right where he was, first in his own personal life, and then in his home. See, authority is not a function of natural power or administrative abilities. It's a function of obedience to God. You, you want to have influence and impact upon others? You want to leave a lasting influence on your world? Then it will not come about through your wit and wisdom. It comes about through your obedience to Christ. Paul said to Timothy, let, don't, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example of the believer in word and conversation, in love and spirit and truth. You see, it, it's these qualities, the fruit of the Spirit, produced in our life that makes people sit up and take notice. It's not the strength of our personality. It's not the power with which we say things. It's it's the quiet working of the Spirit of God within us that nudges people toward God. That's what power is all about. It's the ability to influence people toward God. So here is this inept young man in all of his weakness and frailty who begins to obey God in his own home. And his tribesmen sit up and take notice. This, they say, is a remarkable man. We'll, we'll follow him anywhere. So I think you know the rest of the, uh, of the story, how, how God decimated his army. It's a remarkable story, you know. It's all designed to show us that it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Started out with 22,000, uh, uh, men in, in his army. 22,000. The Midianites had 132,000. It's four to one odds. So the Lord says, we got to do something about those odds. That's serious. So he decimated his army. He says, Gideon says, how many of you are afraid? A whole bunch of hands go up. Everybody was afraid, but a lot of them were afraid to say they were afraid. So uh, those that were afraid... uh, they went back. Uh, that left him with uh, 10,000. Then, verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And you know the test. Those that got down on their hands and knees and drank with their face in the water were disqualified. Those that, that brought the water up to their hands and, and lapped it, uh, they were deemed uh, adequate for this uh, fighting force. I don't know exactly why that particular test was employed. The rabbis have an interesting notion. They say that those that got down on their hands and knees and looked into the water were, were, were narcissistic. They were looking at their faces in the water. They were impressed with themselves. But I don't. I don't think so. Perhaps those who who picked up the water in their hands and lapped it were much more uh, watchful, wary. 
conscientious as soldiers. I simply don't know. But the point is, the Didion was left with 300 men. Now the odds were better, 450 to 1. So the Lord decimated his army, and then he disarmed them. He took away all their swords. There wasn't a single weapon among them. And he gave them instead uh, a trumpet and a, and a candle. Now, I don't know how many of you have, have been in the military, but that's that's not the way you go into war. The trumpet and a candle. This is the way you're going to fight this battle. See. Nebuchadnezzar stood on the top of his castle and he said, Look at what I've done. I've done this by my might and my power. He went crazy. God says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. F.B. Myers, or pardon me, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. We Christians often quote, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And yet in practice, we seem to reply on the almighty dollar and the power of the press and advertising. We seem to think that our influence will depend on our technique and the program we can put forward and that it would be the numbers, the largeness, the bigness that would prove effective. We seem to have forgotten that God has done most of his deeds in the church throughout the history through remnants. We seem to have forgotten the great story of Gideon, for instance, and how God insisted on reducing the 32,000 men down to 300 before he could make use of them. We have become fascinated by the idea of bigness, and we are quite convinced that if we could only stage, that's the word, stage something really big before the world, we'll shake it and produce a mighty religious awakening. You know, I personally was excited by the fact that uh, there were, what, 7,000 men together to Hawk Stadium to affirm their faith in Christ. That was exciting. But we must not think that God's work is going to be done through the, through a mass movement. That's Historically, that's not the way he's worked. He's worked through a very small remnant, a small remnant of hardcore believers. It's always been true. I don't in any sense denigrate what happened. I think it was exciting. You got men together and, and uh, got them motivated to moving toward God. That's that's great stuff. But by and large, that's not how the work of God is done. It's done through you men individually. As you begin to walk with God and live out his presence in your home and live out his presence in your workplace, in your classroom, Wherever you find yourself, as you count upon his strength and you begin to trust and obey, then you can be the, the wonder man, the miracle that God can use to, to change that, uh, that place. You know, Gideon is just like us. You know, he just struggled over and over again with, with believing that God could really do this. And so God did a wonderful thing for him. Sorry, Gideon. Go down into the camp. I want you to hear something. And Gideon crept through the darkness down to the Midianite camp. And, and he overheard two soldiers. It was one of those things that we call accidents. Chance. That, that God has arranged. He happened over here, two soldiers. They were chatting. And they were talking about a dream one of them had the night before. And one of them said, I saw a barley ro- loaf roll into the camp and it flattened our commander's camp, or a tent. And the other fellow said, what do you think it means? He said, I think it means that we're done. I think this is Gideon. And I think we're finished. And you see, God let, let Gideon hear that. F.B. Myers said, uh, 
Gideon was brought back to the simplicity and helplessness of his own resources. In the gathering of these crowds of warriors, in the notoriety he had achieved, in the loyalty of the 300, there was much to inflate his pride. Therefore, God had to bring him face to face with himself. He was only a cake of barley bread at the best. Before God can uplift, use, and anoint us, he must show us what we are, humbling us, emptying us, bringing us into the dust of death. Before God can use you to work a great deliverance, he must convince you of being only a cake of barley bread, five barley loaves, two small fishes. Josephus, the uh, Jewish historian, said that the barley loaf, that a barley loaf was uh, the poorest possible fare. It's like a little hard teeth-bending biscuit. Getting was that barley loaf. You had to be reminded all over again. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And you know what happened. He divided his little army of 300 into three groups, 100 on, in, on, on three sides of the camp. And when Gideon gave the signal, they blew the trumpets and they broke the, 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 lamp, the uh, uh, jugs, little clay jugs in which their candles were located and the light flared and the trumpets blared and Midianites thought for sure they were surrounded by a huge army and so they whipped out their swords and started to fight each other. And they fled across the Jordan and Gideon and his little army of 300 chased them all the way back back home. And that put an end to Midianite dominion. Who, how was this done? Through this one man who describes himself as very small, very insignificant. Sad to say, you know, some people live too long. Uh, sad to say the uh, Gideon lived on to make a fool of himself. After this great uh, victory, they wanted to make him a king. Gideon said, uh, uh, if nominated, I will not uh, run. If elected, I will not serve. Uh, however, he said, I, I wouldn't mind a little gold. And so they laid a half million dollars worth of gold on him. And that was the beginning of the end for Gideon. He he built a little uh, effort, a little gold uh, oracle. And he began to worship it. And he led his whole family astray. You read on into the book of Judges. You see what happened to his son Abimelech, who was the who was born of a, of a prostitute, basically, Canaanite prostitute, and what he did to the nation, and what you know, the, the corruption, the corrosion that began in, in uh, Gideon's family it stemmed from his love of gold. And I said, "What went wrong? What went wrong?" Well, Gideon forgot to need God. He displaced his passion and his need for God with a need for gold. As the sign on the stockbroker's desk says, someone told me about once, ingot, I-N-G-O-T, ingot we trust. Jesus warns us that if if we love gold, we'll despise him. Conversely, if we love him, we'll despise gold. Gold's nothing, you know. Use it for asphalt in heaven. It's you know, it's not a commodity we ought to be pursuing. What we need to pursue with all of our heart is is God Himself. That's what makes us great. It's God that makes us great. When we abandon God in our lives, we become such fools. We act just like Gideon. We start pursuing all the wrong things. Passionate about all the things that that pass away. We begin to live for the transient. Instead of the eternal, we lose that sense of the reality of, of God. That, that's what happened to, 
get in. He stopped needing God. You can't be static in the Christian life. You never arrive. So you're either you're either growing on in faith and going on in your relationship to God, or you're in retrograde. You can't stand still. Only two alternatives: we're either growing in faith, or we're we're declining, we're degenerating as men. There's a there's a character in the Bible that I. Uh, He's not well known. He's found in the book of Chronicles in one of those interminable lists of names. And right in the middle of a whole bunch of names, his name just pops out. His name is Jabez. Jabez had a terrible beginning. Uh, His name means pain. His mother gave him that name because life was such a pain to her. And maybe Jabez was a pain in the neck. I don't know, but she named him Pain. He grew up in a dysfunctional family. He had nothing. He was poverty-stricken. And he prayed, Lord, enlarge my coast. That was his prayer. Enlarge my coast. That should be our prayer as well. Lord, enlarge me. Extend my holdings. We want to push the envelope. We want to keep on growing. We want to grow in grace. We want a greater sphere of influence. And we're told that God granted his request. Just that simple word. He prayed, Lord, enlarge my coast. And God had granted his request. Because, as James puts it, if you ask for the right things, you get what you ask for. He didn't ask amiss. He asked for growth in grace, growth toward God. Greater understanding of who God was so that his influence could be extended. And God gave him what he requested. And gentlemen, that would be my, my word to you this morning. Just keep on growing. You know, as Mr. Natural used to say, keep on trucking. So if I can change that, keep on trusting. Keep on needing God. Keep on longing for Him. Keep on asking for Him. And He'll give you what you request. Let's pray. Father, we confess that as fathers, we are miserable failures. We are not what you've called us to be. But you understand. You know that we're made of dust. You understand our our makeup. You understand us even better than we understand ourselves. And the longing of your heart is to fill us and flood us and make us into the men that 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 you long for us to be, that we want to be. So like Jabez, Father, we ask that you would enlarge our territory that we would gain new ground, that we would grow new faith, that we would go where we have never gone before. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.